Hey everyone, Pastor Brandon here, and welcome to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the sermon today. Momentum is about movement. It's taking a step into godly purpose, investing ourselves into the kingdom, taking the momentary to eternity. It's something to be gained. It's a turning motion to shift, but always shifting forward. It's transforming. Our story is unfolding into a new yet familiar adventure. It's like holding a memento while recognizing the hand of the artist in all the new things in unlikely places saying what God's done before will happen again, but it won't look like what we're used to. It's a surprising plan only God could create. It feels like revival. It feels like anticipation, and it looks like His invitation. And we accept. So let us hang on with holy expectation and know that God is calling us to greater things. We just have to say yes. Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning and welcome formally back to the book of Acts, that amazing book in the New Testament that records the first 30 years of the early church, how they were formed, what God did in their generation, and of course, what he is calling us to do in our time and in our generation. Now, interestingly, a little connection from last week's message and this week's message, we're back in and around this conversation about expectations. I've said this before. I said it last week. I'm going to say it again. Expectations are so important to be understood. We, we all know that if there is an unmet expectation in a marriage or a friendship or connected to a job, that can lead to bitterness, that can lead to disunity, that can lead actually to things becoming permanently broken. And actually, when it comes to faith, if we do not get our expectations correct at the beginning, then when things go differently, then we can end up using that biblical phrase, shipwrecking our faith. Because when things don't go the way they were supposed to after I accepted Jesus, uh, then what happened? God failed me. I failed God. Satan's too strong. All of this is fake. The church failed me. Like all this stuff begins to sort of bleed out and burn out when the expectation was wrong in the first place. And one of the most significant expectations that we have to readjust, which we've talked about so many times in this church, is the expectation around safety. Safety in the short term. Um, you hear in all sorts of churches, God is for us. He will not let the evil one touch us. And in the ultimate sense, of course, that's true. The resurrection is true. Nothing can take that away. But this idea that actually everything's just going to be okay once we follow Jesus down here is actually untrue. I remember I was teaching in um, a seminary on spiritual conflict, and I was teaching a five-day course, and I, I basically just threw out this line where I said basically to the, to the students there doing master's degree in preaching and teaching and biblical counseling and spiritual direction, I said, by the way, this is not a phony war. This is a real war. And of course, Jesus is ultimately one. But if you think that you're a Christian and you can't be touched by the devil, what Bible are you reading? And this woman put up her hand. She was so distraught. How can you say that, Professor Thompson? That's so wrong. God's protecting me. And I said, of course he is in the ultimate sense. But all through the Bible, amazing people suffered. 
There are 380 million people around the world who are Christians right now suffering terribly just because they're Christians. This idea that everything's going to be safe once I encounter God is a dangerous expectation. So the question is, how do we reframe that so we're not consumed by fear 24-7, but also we walk right? Well, this is where we land now in the book of Acts. Now, just to give you a super summary, in 11 chapters that we basically walk through in part, God has done unbelievable things. Hebraic Jews and Greek Jews, who don't really get along, are now together. And then they're hanging out with their blood enemies, the Samaritans. And then Libyans, North Africans, and Ethiopians, and other Africans, and Romans, and Greeks have all been included in God's family through the work of Jesus. And what's so striking is they're actually doing life together and they're worshiping together. God just keeps overcoming more and more barriers, crossing more and more lines that have not yet been crossed. Remember, if you were with us, God's last two moves have been even more radical than Jews being included and hanging out with Samaritans. God has been showing us that no person is off limits to God's love. Jesus really did die for the sins of the whole world. And now even our enemies could become part of God's family? Yes, of course. First, it was, remember, a Jewish person, a family member, uh, a Saul, who hated Jesus And within the Jewish Christian community, he radically encounters Jesus and becomes Paul. That was like mind-blowing. One who literally was at jailing and murdering Christians now becomes a leader. And then, if you remember, it was God crossing another red line, making Romans, even Roman soldiers, captains, as we would say, members of the occupational forces. They become family through Jesus too? Yep. Words like impossible, unfeasible, impractical, unworkable, not viable. This is unattainable, unachievable, out of the question, hopeless, ridiculous. It feels unjust. And yet, Jesus keeps doing this incredible thing. And of course, as we keep going through the book of Acts, there are going to be more mind-bending moments to come. But before we get there, we need to pause in chapter 12. In the middle of all this amazing stuff, reconciliation, salvation, connection, a new wave of persecution begins. Suddenly, we're dragged in the book back from the ends of the earth, back through Samaria, back through Judah or Judea, and back to Jerusalem, back into the lion's den. And we read this in Acts 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. So a new wave of persecution begins. More people are being attacked because they're Christians. And then Herod's at the center. Now we need to pause and I'll ask ourselves this question. Which Herod is this? Because there's so many. Okay, so this, this is Herod Agrippa I. Lived from, I think, around 10 BC to 44 AD. He's the grandson of Herod the Great who built the Great Temple. He's the nephew of the Herod that killed John the Baptist and was at Jesus' trial. Now there's more to this Herod that we need to hear. This Herod, his childhood and young adult years were epic, were amazing. He lived almost all of those years in the highest imperial circles in Rome. His closest friends growing up as a teenager was Claudius and Gaius. Both of those guys later became the head of the Roman Empire. They both became Caesar. You might know Gaius by his full name, Caligula. Uh, grand-nephew of Tiberius. Now, when he became emperor, he personally gave Herod his political power around 37 AD. So this is wild about this Herod. This Herod is pro-Roman, 
and deeply connected to the most powerful people on earth. And yet, he's actually very respectful of Jewish ideas and customs. Actually, unlike some of the other Herods in his family, he was liked by a lot of the Jewish people and even liked by the Jewish leadership. Why? Well, he had a connection that he liked using. His grandmother was part of the Hasmonean dynasty. This is the Jewish leadership that tried making things right between Malachi in the Old Testament and Matthew in the New Testament, 400 years. They led a huge revolt against the Greeks in 167 BC under the Maccabean family. So this Herod is very powerful, really connected. He's respected by Orthodox Jews. He's loved and respected by Romans and those who lead the Roman government. He's an amazing bridge builder. He knows how to keep things right. And he's a brilliant strategist when it comes to balance. But he's still a Herod from a crazy family. So he's connected, but he's ruthless. He's powerful and he's ruthless. He'll do anything to keep his balance balanced. So what does he do? He starts to lay hands on, he starts to harm, mistreat, persecute the Jesus movement. He actually begins to do something quite brutal. He begins to systematically dismember the movement at its home base. He begins to do what Saul actually could not accomplish because Jesus intervened. The religious leaders and now the political leaders that hate each other half the time join forces again, just like they did around Jesus's trial. They've got a common enemy, strange bedfellows, but let's get it done. And what was the very first big blow? Well, as we're going to read, it's massive, it's overwhelming, it was devastating. It just reads like this in verse 2. Uh, Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So what happens? The first of the twelve apostles is murdered for preaching the good news about Jesus. Can you imagine the fear in the church community? I mean, Stephen, a deacon, bad enough, but now even the 12 that walk with Jesus can be touched, really? Can you imagine the pain of his brother John finding out his, his brother's been murdered? He, this is the John that writes the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. Can you imagine his anger, his sadness, his pain, his questioning? James is beheaded here. And in this time, that was connected, in Jewish law at least, to murder and false teaching and blasphemy. But why was it really done? Well, we see it in verse 3. When Herod saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded now to seize Peter. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. So you've got Herod getting more likes, Herod getting more retweets, Herod getting more watches, Herod getting more yeses. It gave him more power, more credibility, more influence with a community that can be fickle. So what does he do? What does a smart politician do? Well, he, he does more to get better ratings. So Herod doesn't care about what Christians really think or teach. This is about maintain, maintaining power and balance. It has nothing to do with belief. So James is dead, and, and Peter... The same guy that did, did all that amazing work for Jesus with a Roman centurion and his family and friends just a moment before is now thrown in jail for seven days over the Jewish Passover holiday by the proxy Roman government. Now, think about this. I don't know if you've ever made this connection. He's thrown in jail during Passover. How sad. This shows how blind the Jewish leaders and many of the people have become. Jesus from Nazareth is the fulfillment of Passover. And yet Jesus and his people, Jesus' people, that is, are thrown into jail for talking about Jesus fulfilling the Passover during Passover. Now remember what John the Baptist said, 
about his cousin. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe you don't know about Passover. A lot of you do. Let me just do a summary. In Egypt, the Jewish people were slaves, and they cried out to God. God sent Moses. Moses went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh would not let the people go. God sent 10 plagues against Egypt and its gods. Pharaoh still would not let them go. Plague 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, etc. So the last plague was the worst. An angel would come and take the life of every single firstborn. Now for protection for the people of God, under God's command and direction, he told them, take a perfect little lamb, kill it, and place its blood over the doorposts of your house. And so when the angel of death comes, the blood will be a sign of protection because judgment will have to pass over that house. That is why it's called a Passover lamb. The lamb represents a life laid down, one taking the place of others, taking the place of what is deserved. Later in the temple, a lamb was given in the morning and evening at sacrifice as a guilt or sin offering. So Jesus is the ultimate culmination of this. He is the replacement. He is the real Passover lamb, the offering to deal with our guilt and sin. Jesus' life, death, his blood shed, right? His ascension deals with all the issues between us and God, and his blood is put over the doorposts of our life, and God's just wrath, what? Passes over us. And yet, Peter's in jail, as the Jewish community is celebrating this festival, he himself is Jewish, for preaching that Jesus fulfilled this. Now, unlike James, God intervenes and does a little mini exodus and sets Peter free. After arresting him, verse 4, Herod put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Herod and other leaders take Peter's influence so seriously that they not only jail him, they put four guards on him at all time. Two are chained to him and two are outside the door in the hallway. This is an endgame scenario. This is going, this is like, you're going to die like James. There's no way out. There's no legal recourse. There's no door. There's no, my friends are going to come protest. There's no, I'm going to appeal this to the Supreme Court. Where's my phone call? Everything that we take for granted in the West from a democratic perspective does not exist here. It's done. Peter is a dead man sitting. Peter is a dead man waiting. Peter is a dead man walking. Well, Peter was kept in prison, but the church earnestly prayed to God for him. So what does the church do? I mean, what can the church do? I mean, they've got no power. They can only do one thing. They pray and they petition and they stand in the gap and they go before God who's above all things, who controls all things and can overcome the impossible. Now notice, maybe you've read this passage time and time again and never caught it. The church was praying not just once, but on and off over a long period of time. So over a six-day period, the church keeps praying for Peter. Six days pass, nothing. Six days of unanswered prayer, they keep praying. Six days of injustice, they keep going. Six days of Peter preparing to die. And then at the very last minute, it says this in verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Did you just see that? On the night before trial and death, Peter is deep asleep. And this sleep is directly connected to hope. The slumber is connected to sovereign trust. 
I don't know if I've ever made this connection. I made it this week when I was rereading the passage. He's become like Jesus. He's covered in the rabbi's dust, as we've talked about. Jesus, do you remember Jesus sleeping in a boat in the middle of a violent storm? And he's like totally storing. And Peter's like freaking out. We're all going to die. Why don't you care? Why don't you wake up? And then Peter, right, witnesses Jesus standing up. He rebukes the wind and waves. Why do you have so little faith? And now, years later, Peter is sleeping just like Jesus as he's about to die. He's actually become more fully devoted. And his, oh, everyone lean in, his expectations have changed. So Peter's deep asleep. Guards are walking in the halls. Two literal guards are chained to him. Door upon door upon door is locked and barred. Peter's not in some local jail, by the way. This is the main fortress in Jerusalem. And then it says in verse 7, suddenly. <laughs> suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter in the side and woke him up. Quick, get up. He said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Peter, get up. Peter, get up. This reminds me of what parents go through with teenagers. And if you were a teenager, which many of you have been, you know you did this too. Like I, I remember with certain one of my kids, if I go wake them up, it's never pretty. Wake up, leave me alone. Wake up. You turn on the light, shut off the lights. Like there's, you have to like get them out. I, I feel like the angel's having the same experience. I wonder if he said, oh, humans, oh my goodness. It literally reads in the original text. It's sort of like it says the angel kicked him in the ribs or slapped him in the face, or, or, or pushed him hard. This isn't like a, a, a little angel, a chubby angel. Behold, Peter. Like, he kicks him. Bro, wake up. My common boss has sent me. This is happening. Look at your wrists. The chains are on the ground. The guards are still sleeping. Bro, we got to go. So the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. Okay, so he's basically naked between two guards. Uh, wrap the cloak around you and follow me. So... This is like the angel saying, Peter, Peter, uh, this is happening. This isn't a trance. This, you're not in a dream. This is real. Uh, this is not like the hummus from last night. Get, get dressed. Peter, I guarantee, is stumbling, half asleep, unsure, uh, probably not even believing this is true. Well, we know that's true because it says that verse 9, Peter, said, Peter followed him out of the prison. He had no idea uh, that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. So they passed... Uh, the first and then the second guards, and then they came even to the iron gate that led to the city. It opened by itself. They went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel just left him. I've always wondered if the cold got his attention. Like he looks around and suddenly realizes, oh, I'm free free. Chains, guards, huge iron gates, protecting the whole city. He walks through all of this, and the angel, the heaven-given guide, sort of basically moves him beyond all the danger, and then says, okay, my job is done, I'm out, and just disappears. And Peter's like, oh. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And when this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where people had gathered and were, at that moment, praying. Now, interesting about this house. If you read church history, um, number one, this is a great example of what church looked like in the first 30 plus years of the church. They gathered in Christian homes to worship and to pray and take communion, hear God's word. Christian tradition tells us that this house is the house where the Last Supper took place. And so, 
basically Peter goes to where multiple connect groups are meeting and praying. And it says in verse 13, I love this, Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came and answered the door. Okay, this little boring moment really matters. Outer entrance. You're like, why are you harping on outer entrance? Here's why. Only very large, wealthy homes had outer entrances. So uh, for us in Toronto, like this is Rosedale, this is Yorkville. If you live in New York City, like this is the east side of the park, right? Like if you're in London, this is like Kensington and Chelsea. Like this is money, money, not just money. It's money, money, money. So Peter comes to a large gathering of Christians in a very large home. And in all homes of wealth, of course, there are servants. This is like Downton Abbey for all you Downton Abbey fans. So Rhoda, the servant, comes to the door. There's a knock late at night. I'm sure she thought this is not good news, right? It's the middle of the night. There's a large gathering of Christians here. The king and religious leaders are hunting Christians. Maybe this is the authorities coming to knock down the door. Amazon sure doesn't deliver at this time of night. She doesn't even open the door, which tells you the fear probably behind this. She asks, who's there? And Peter says, it's me. Now, I love this next part. This is so awesome. Verse 14, when she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening the door and exclaimed to the whole group, Peter's at the door. So Peter, this is brilliant. Peter's out in the middle of the night. He's a fugitive. He does not even know if the cops are going to come and show up and take him back to jail. He's made it all the way back to this local house. Then he says to the servant, Rhoda, hey, it's me. She gets so excited, she runs into the prayer meeting and yells, Peter's at the front gate. And Peter's like still knocking, saying, hello, hello, Rhoda, seriously. I wonder if he was like thinking in his head, hold on, I just was in jail. An angel showed up, guards, prison doors, city gates, chains. I'm being hunted and I can't even get into my connect group's house. Are you joking? Anyone? To use an old phrase, Bueller, Bueller, anyone? So the servant comes into the prayer meeting and says, Peter's at the door, God has answered our prayer, and the church, so filled with faith, so excited, responds like this, you are out of your mind. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. So God, catch this, has answered their six-day-long prayer meeting, and they do not believe it. Praying earnestly for days fervent, deep, real. They're literally stretched out for days, great prayers without any expectation. And notice the bias in the room is this. Well, she's young and you know, she's only a, a servant. Thanks for your enthusiasm. Thanks, but you're young. We've been around the block. We've prayed more than once, and we know what really is going to happen. I mean, Peter's not at the door. His release is impossible. Maybe, you know what? Hey, listen, you're really excitable. No problem. It's just probably his guardian angel. So let's get back to the prayer meeting and not believing anything's going to happen. Amen. Well, Peter kept knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And then he says, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he left for another place. So Peter at that moment leaves, goes into hiding, but shares his amazing story. You might from, come from a tradition, you'd call it testimony, from their long-term prayers being answered. Now notice, he says, you've got to make sure that James knows what happened to me. And then he disappears in the night.
Now, some of you are like, oh my gosh, this is so tragic. Like, Peter doesn't know that James is dead yet. Wrong James. Uh, James, the brother of John, is dead. That's the apostle. Uh, dead. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. This is Mary and Joseph's kid, James, who becomes the head of the Jerusalem church and writes a little letter, many of you have read if you're a Christian, called the book of James in the New Testament. So one James is very dead, and one James is very alive. Now, it says in the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as of what had happened to Peter after Herod had uh, thoroughly searched, had a thorough search made for Peter and did not find Peter. He cross-examined the guards and ordered they would be executed. I'm sure Herod thought it was a plot, a bribe, but no matter, according to Roman law, under the code of Justinian, if someone gets away from you, you as the guard face the same penalty the escapee would have been charged with. So think about the tragedy of this. At least four soldiers die. Injustice just keeps in breeding, just keeps breeding more injustice. It just spreads more death. Well, the story shifts again. Not only did Herod have power over life and death of people, he had power of life and death over cities and regions. He's at the height of his power at this moment. His personal friends are the most powerful people on earth. He's got Roman military backing. He's got support among parts of the Jewish leadership. And the next part of this moment shows his political prowess. It says, then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, and he stayed there. That's where that Remember the Roman centurion had become a follower of Jesus with his family? Same place. Now, Herod had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. And after securing the support of Blastius, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Okay, you're like, what's going on? I thought the Romans were in charge of everything. Well, yes, but it was distributed. So there's a trade war taking place between these two self-governing cities, Tyre and Sidon, and Herod's area of power. So Herod had started an economic boycott of these two cities to force them into compliance. Now there's a meeting between these two self-governing cities that needed Judea that was run by Herod. Well, Herod says, not only am I going to punish these two cities, I'm going to put on a show to show them who's in charge. This is like when you go into a boss's office and they're so paranoid, they lower the chair so they're always looking down at you or they always have a massive desk and they always sit across from it so you know who's in charge. Herod decides to put on a major show of power, wealth, to humble and humiliate these two cities. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. You're like, that's not so impressive. Well, interestingly, this story is not just found by Luke in the book of Acts. This is also recorded by the historian Josephus outside of the Bible, who was living at the same time. See, the phrase royal robes actually gives us insight. Josephus actually records what the royal robes look like, and you'll see why it matters in a moment. This is what Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote about this. He said, Herod was clad in a garment woven completely of silver, so that its texture was indeed wondrous. 
He entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver, illuminated by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was so wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed upon it. So he walks in, wearing a robe made of pure silver, designed to be fluid, and right when he, like movable, right? Then he walks in, and it literally reflects the sun so brightly, people are blinded. And then, verse 22, they shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms, and he died. But the word of God, that's the gospel of Jesus, continued to spread and flourish. Okay, everyone ready? God always wins. He has cut down four years, basically, into his full reign. The contrast could be, not be more stark. God's victory over political power and all other powers. Herod had all the cards. Yet Peter got out. Herod had the right clothing, he had money, he had connections, he had military backing, he had religious support, and yet God took him out. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God overcame bad leaders, God overcame bad thinking, God overcame military power, God overcame economic fights, God overcame wrong motives, God overcame deceived shepherd thinking. They think they knew God and they didn't know God. And are you seeing the connection yet? Religious, political, economic, social, national, racial issues. Look around everyone. 2024 is not much different from back then. Our world, no matter where you land, this is all going on. But God, found through Jesus Christ, always wins always wins. I started this message talking about expectations. And I'm so glad that God placed this in the middle of Acts. Because in the middle of all the amazing conversions and all the amazing work, and, and again, and we're going to see in chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, as we just keep going, you just, you just see the incredible work of God. And yet, the very first thing that's brought up here is death and deliverance, right? I mean, this story is important for us as a church in our thinking and in our expectations. Notice the story. Lean into the story. See the uncomfortable truth of this story. Two church leaders both walked with Jesus for three and a half years, both in Jesus' inner circle. Both saw Jesus do everything together. Both did amazing things in Jesus' name. And one's killed, and one is saved. Did God love Peter more than James? Did God not see James, but decided to see Peter? No, no. God loves both Peter and James with his whole heart. Died for them, rose for them, prays for them. God saw both. God was personally with both. And, and God allowed these different journeys by his will. Any suffering or martyrdom is not weakness or God being hateful or uncaring or statistic. sadistic. Remember Psalm 116.15, precious in the sight of the Lord is, is the death of his faithful servants. God does not find pleasure in the death or suffering of his children for the kingdom cause. 
but it is allowed under his sovereign will. He uses great deliverances and injustice to bring others to eternal life. We even talked about the role of martyrdom in our spiritual gifts series and how we need to work that through. And we've talked about how suffering is a guaranteed place of encounter. So what is God telling us? During great moves of God, there is real opposition. When God moves, Satan moves. When God moves, people push back. When God moves the most, that is where the greatest act of God is seen. This is also where suffering will become closest to us. Comfort or safety is not the ultimate factor for a follower of Jesus. Deliverance in the now and rights in the now are not guaranteed. James was faithful and Peter was faithful. One died and one lived a little bit longer, but both of their stories pushed the message and the love and power of Jesus forward. God used both of them to bring the kingdom of God on earth. We as Christians are called to obey. We're called to preach the good news. We're called to witness about Jesus. We're called to love the poor, meet together, be conformed out of scripture, to love Jesus and love enemies. And we know that in the end, all things will be made right. At the resurrection, in the last day, we will be rewarded for our suffering for the things of the kingdom. We will be rewarded, and actually, the powers of this world don't win. But the concern is, the truth is, many of us might just leave the Christian faith, or walk away, or deny it, or compromise, if it did cost us our job, or our reputation, or our rights, or maybe part of your political view. We might actually shipwreck our faith because we actually think maybe God wouldn't allow suffering in the middle of a grand move of His Spirit. But that's just not biblical. It's actually just Western. See, if you don't have the right starting point and then something tragic takes place, you'll have to think that God lied or you sinned or the church failed or Satan's too strong or it's all fake. We don't look for suffering. We've talked about this so many times in this church. And this is talking about suffering for the kingdom. This isn't suddenly like I have cancer or there's an early death moment. This is talking about we suffer for the things of Christ. We live in a broken world in many ways. But here's the point. We don't look for suffering, but we should not be shocked if it comes. And no matter the suffering, whether it is because of disease or brokenness or because of the kingdom, we know in the end God wins through Jesus because the resurrection is true. So number one, let me ask you a question. Are your expectations correct? Have you even almost made a handshake with the devil where you've quietly said, don't bother me and I won't bother you? I mean, I'll do anything for God, but just don't touch my kids or don't touch my health or, you know, just, you know, just don't, don't touch my wealth. Hmm. That leads us to something else. It's not just expectations. It's this deeper question. What about rest and fear? If safety is not guaranteed, how can you rest? How, how could you sleep like Peter? I mean, we don't need to be overcome by fear, deeply dr full of dread, anxiety. Am I going to be James? Am I going to be Peter? Is God going to... Oh. Actually, the brilliance of what we see in Peter is this. He had such joy in Jesus. And he was overshadowed by the knowledge and truth and light of eternity that he was able to rest in a terrible situation. Anxiety is normal for many of us, and some of us struggle with it even clinically. 
But what, what's getting at the heart here is you're able to rest as a Christian because though life can be good and life is great, we know that this is not it. The, the new heavens and the new earth is the thing that ripples into eternity. And for some of you, it's not changing your expectations or struggling to trust God, not just love Him. Actually, for some of you, it's just like, Holy Spirit, give me the ability to rest in the middle of all the possible fear. So you've got, are your expectations okay? Uh, have you asked the Holy Spirit to produce in you a rest that isn't normal, not natural, but godly? And actually, the last thing is probably the most significant thing for the church. What do we do and how do we respond in really broken, mixed-up times? Well, we live in hope, yep, and we resist evil, yep, and we stand up and we try living hospitable lives and we preach the good news, but we respond almost to everything by praying. There was a very famous leader named Samuel Chadwick who said, intensity is the law of prayer. Abraham pleaded with God over Sodom. Jacob wrestled with God at night, all night. Moses stood in the preach before God, uh, in, in, uh, before God and his people. Elijah, Elijah in, in 1 Kings 18, prayed so powerfully that he put his head between his knees seven times asking for water from heaven. Hannah was so overcome during prayer, she appeared drunk out of her mind. John Knox, the great reformer of Scotland, said to God, God, give me Scotland or I die. One person said, if extended, fervent, united prayer is not a church's first resort in a time of crisis, the church reveals that it is ultimately depending on someone else or something else other than God. The simple truth is, in ongoing moves of God and in boring times, prayer is still key. And we see this here. And the enemies of ongoing prayer, as one person said, is coldness, I don't care enough to pray. Boredom, I have better things to do. Cynicism, unbelief, prayer has no effect. It's useless, so I'm going to pray, but I don't really mean it. Peter's never getting out of jail. Or lack of faith, this is just ever impossible. Maybe your response this week is, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, could you uh, get rid of my coldness or my boredom? or my cynicism, or my lack of faith? Could we actually commit to pray for God to break in again and do like an impossible thing like Peter getting out of jail when it was done? God reorients our expectations so we make it. God provides profound ability to rest when we shouldn't. And God gives us the ability to pray and see things differently. So how about we respond like this? Lord, you're the same God that set Peter free and allowed James to die. You're the same God that's going to resurrect Peter and James and reward them. And in this year, in 2024 at Sanctus, we pray in three directions. Number one, help us not just to love you, God. Help us to trust you in all things. Help there to be no handshaking, uh, comfort over, over kingdom anywhere. Lord, for some, certain people, they've got to reorient their expectations. Would you help them adjust this week? For others of us, just give us the ability to rest and not be consumed by fear and anxiety. 
we all struggle with fear and anxiety down here, God. We always will. But would you give us this ability to rest because you, you're good and you're going to work things out? Help us to see things in the light of eternity. And lastly, would you, um, would you give back to our church the faith that we used to have that was probably crushed during the pandemic? And would you bring back uh, a prayer life across our church in all different forms that actually would not only just pray but believe what you're going to do is what you're going to do. Rekindle prayer in Sanctus, we ask. Even this week, we ask in Jesus' name. And we all sit together. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you can find ways to support the ministry and the Lord's vision for our church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, please hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.